0: Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Mimi, your host for The Wildlife and also author of Animal Investigators How the World's First Wildlife Forensic Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with John Scanlon, Secretary General of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, also known as CITES. CITES is one of the most effective international agreements for protecting wild animals and plants. It regulates international trade in close to 35,000 species of plants and animals, including their products and derivatives, with an eye toward ensuring their continued survival in the wild. The convention currently has 177 member states or parties. These parties meet every two to three years to update the convention and consider proposals for amending the CITES Appendices. The CITES Appendices list species at different degrees of risk and then regulates commercial trade in those species accordingly. The most imperiled plants and animals are listed in Appendix 1, which prohibits all commercial trade. Appendix 2, which controls trade through a permit system, contains those species still at risk, but less so. The next conference of parties will be held in Bangkok, Thailand, from the 3rd to 14th of March, 2013. This date is actually special because it coincides with CITES' 40th anniversary. In the following interview, I talk with CITES Secretary General John Scanlon about his reflections on the agreement itself and what to look for at the upcoming meeting. Now, here is my conversation with CITES Secretary General John Scanlon. This is a really important month for CITES and because it's really the 40th anniversary of the adoption of CITES. So I'm just curious what, you know, it's a great time to sort of reflect and um, especially because CITES has been called one of the most effective international environmental agreements. So I'm just curious about sort of your, some of your overall reflections on the 40th anniversary and what, you know, what makes this agreement so effective?
1: Thanks for that. Laurel, I think um, the 40th anniversary is a good time to reflect and to look at um, uh, strengths and weaknesses, what's worked, what hasn't. I think overall you'd have to reflect back on 40 years and say it has been in the context of international agreements one of the most effective, if not the most effective international agreement in terms of dealing with environmental issues. I think there are certain aspects that have been a strength of the convention, but I also think there are some areas where it's been a bit weak, uh, where we need to put in a little bit more effort. Um, I think the strength of the convention is a well-drafted convention. So the text of the convention is very clear. It reflects the sort of conventions that were drafted in the 1970s. They're less uh, framework-like, less aspirational, and much more direct uh, they're quite clear in terms of what their objective is and how they're proposing to achieve that objective. So I think this one of the strengths is actually the, the quality of the original drafting of the text. Another strength has been the manner in which the parties have uh, filled in the blanks. So they have created a body of resolutions and decisions over time that have helped to give expression to the Convention text. Again, they're very clear, they're well-crafted, uh, they provide uh, direction where direction was needed. And also, they've been continually reviewed over time, so you don't have resolutions and decisions uh, piling up over time. They get retired, so you have a, a, a smaller, shorter list of active resolutions and decisions that are of great value to parties as they look to, to implement the, the convention.
0: So it's really a living, uh, breathing.
1: It's a living, breathing convention, and it's one that has actually um, uh, been able to evolve from a good base. If the original drafting of the Convention text was poor, it would have been more difficult, but the original drafting of the Convention text was very strong and you have to pay credit to the negotiators that uh, concluded it back in uh, March 1973 that they uh, they negotiated a very good text and then give credit to those who have uh, sought to interpret it and implement it over time. So that's been very positive. I think that... Um, uh one of there have been two areas where i think it's been lacking i think firstly it's been so good technically and operationally that i think it lost sight of the importance of engaging politically and i think when we deal with issues of this magnitude if you cannot adequately connect politically uh you find that your resources start to dry up and it becomes more difficult to uh to work at the operational level and i think we did disconnect uh from the political level um in many respects, including through the Secretariat, and that's an area where we have put significant effort the past three years, and that is to reconnect at the highest possible political level, reconnect to political processes, um, and uh, to ensure that our agenda is embedded in uh, the uh, more significant agendas that are being considered uh, globally. By way of example... For the first time, uh, CITES has been uh, recognised in uh, one of these global summits on sustainable development. Uh, you recall you had the 1972 event where the uh, recommendation of uh, the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment recommended concluding the negotiations for CITES. But then we had events in Rio Johannesburg uh, where there was no uh, reference at all made to CITES. Uh, in 1992 and in 2002, but in 2012 in Rio we saw paragraph 203 of the uh, future we want uh, reflect very clearly the importance of CITES, in fact world leaders use the language we, we recognise the importance of CITES and recognise it as a convention that stands at the intersection between trade, environment and development, recognise the social, economic and environmental impacts of illicit trade in wildlife and also recognise the importance of science as well as the uh, interrelationship with uh, people and their livelihoods. So there you had a very clear expression at the highest political level of the importance of the convention. And that's that's a, a landmark uh, statement, if you like. We've also seen, I was asked to give testimony before the US foreign, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Secretary Clinton uh, had uh, an event on wildlife crime. We've seen... Uh, At the highest political level, we've seen presidents or prime ministers, uh, be it in uh, uh, Kenya or be it in Gabon or be it in other countries, uh, express themselves uh, on issues here. So we're starting to see a a higher level of uh, political interest, which is going to be critical. The other thing that's interesting about CITES is that unlike some other conventions, such as the Montreal Protocol, uh, CITES has managed to work effectively without a financial mechanism. And uh, if you look at the Montreal Protocol, it had the multilateral fund and $2.6 billion got invested through that fund to help 160-odd developing states implement. Um, We didn't have that under CITES. We have no financial mechanism under CITES. States developed and developing have contributed their own resources to help implement this convention. So there, that is a, as a weakness, but the, the parties actually stood up and took measures to implement the convention. But in fact, at COP16, we'll be looking at whether or not CITES should have a financial mechanism, namely should the Global Environment Facility serve as a financial mechanism for CITES. One of the other very interesting aspects of the convention, I think it's been a great strength, is it, it doesn't operate in a typical way for the United Nations. You don't find at our COPs that you have the G77 and WEOG being the developed countries. Uh, What you find here is it's a bit more like a conscience vote in a parliament or a congress or a diet where uh, states vote freely on issues depending upon uh, how they choose to to go. So you will find the African continent has a difference of opinion with certain issues to do with ivory trade. Uh, You see China and the United States putting forward joint proposals for listing you see Latin American states, European States, and North African states uh, coming together to propose listings. So, in fact, you see a convention that is, if you like, uh, much more pragmatic, uh, uh, not operating on the on the traditional type un negotiations, uh, where you see countries from developed developing states in transition all working together on different proposals in the interest of survival of species in the wild. So I think, there's some interesting distinguishing characteristics uh, of the Convention, uh, strengths and weaknesses, um, and uh, I think uh, at this forthcoming COP we'll have a chance to uh, address uh, these issues and others.
0: Since you've been the Secretary General of CITES, what are some of the changes you've emphasized? We talked a, you talked a lot about the um, political level, and I guess does that include some of the international cooperation? I know we've talked about that before with... Um You know, it seems that CITES is now much more integrated with the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime, the World Bank, the World Customs Organization. Is that part part and parcel of the international cooperation in trying to get the financing mechanism?
1: I think that um, one of the interesting aspects of the convention is when it was originally negotiated, the predecessor to the World Trade Organization, the GATT, actually participated in the negotiations, as did the FAO. So given it's a convention that deals with trade, you saw others be engaged in it. Given it has an interest in how you deal with both legal and illegal trade, uh, it is engaged with uh, institutions with an enforcement mandate. I think the interesting thing is there that we saw the convention engage, but we saw the convention not engaging as deeply as it needed to in order to ensure the most effective implementation of the convention. What we've seen over the past few years is deepening the engagement in some cases or re-establishing the engagement that had perhaps uh, lapsed over time with others. So we engage with non-government sector, with international organisations within and outside the UN and um, uh, obviously with uh, all of our parties who are the, the, the owners of the convention. But if you think what we're doing on the enforcement side, having brought in place this consortium, we now have very deep engagement with those agencies within the system, be they UN or non-UN, that are primarily charged with uh, dealing with enforcement issues. So, Interpol, UN Office of Drugs and Crime, World Customs and World Bank, in terms of the work it does on money laundering. So we're now deeply embedded within the work programs at those particular institutions, and they are taking up the CITES agenda as their own agenda which is a significant change, and we've seen resolutions of all of those institutions, uh, or in particular, World Customs, um, Interpol and UNODC, over the past few years, embedding CITES-related issues into their own agendas. But we're also seeing that happen with Amazonian Cooperation Treaty Organization, which has built CITES into its own strategic plan, as has the Pacific Environment Program, uh, SPREP, into its own program. We've deepened our engagement with UNEP, We've also deepened our engagement with traditional partners like IUCN which uh, has done a lot of work with us on uh, issues to do with the science behind listings. We've deepened the engagement with traffic uh, through ETAS. We've deepened the engagement um, with other partners with whom we work uh, right across the board. I've personally met with a whole raft of groups in the non-government sector, be they come from an animal rights, animal welfare, conservation, sustainable use perspective, because we have a, a wide suite of interest in the convention. So I think they're, we are a convention that engages very deeply within and across uh, intergovernmental, international and national uh, entities, be they government or non- non-government, and that is a great strength of the convention, but we needed to reinvigorate it in some cases, create it in others, or um, further entrench it in uh, in some cases.
0: And then, turning to the upcoming meeting that's going to be held in Bangkok, um, what you know, what are the some of the m- most important items that's going that are going to be decided?
1: So there are. A huge number of issues, a bit hard to speak generally because uh, as with our agenda as always there are a multiplicity of different species and different issues that arise and they have different uh, implications. If you look at the listing side of things in terms of what uh, proposals there are either to include or exclude or um, um, up list or down list, uh, they're quite significant proposals. Um, I think one of the most significant is the number of proposals that are coming from range state to list high value timber species. Um, uh, A number of years ago there was some resistance to uh, incorporating commercially valuable timber species under CITES. We've seen a a significant transition there where we now see range states seeing the benefit of CITES and requesting uh, the COP to uh, list their species either on Appendix 1 or 2. we've gone from you know 10 20 species uh, timber species under under the convention to 350 now and we've got several hundred species proposed for listing at this cop including uh, most of madagascar's uh, commercially valuable uh, timber species that's a big shift wow, but it's that's also huge. <laughs> co- it's, it's also coincided with the collaboration we have with the International Tropical Timber Organisation, which is one of our best collaborations. And we're moving into phase two of a project with them. It's a $7.5 million project, uh, which assists range states to do the science they need, to do the non-detriment finding to ensure the sustainability of trade. So I think here we've seen the international community turn to CITES as a reliable and useful instrument in regulating international trade in commercially valuable timber that, that's a big shift and we will see how parties will respond to proposals at uh, this COP but a lot of the um, difference of opinion that was around that issue to start with seems to have dissipated with uh, quite a collective view now as to the value of sites in in uh, dealing with international trade in timber so i'd say that's significant we also have the issue of marine species with five sharks and the manta ray in particular being proposed for listing uh, this continues to be a, a rather contentious issue under the convention the extent to which scientists should manage marine species in particular those that are commercially valuable um, and it'll be interesting to see uh, which way the parties decide to go on this occasion the science uh, that's come from the fao expert panel uh, seems to support uh, listing of the species that have been proposed for listing, the sharks and the uh, the manta ray. Uh, certainly nowhere are the comments coming from FAO uh, suggesting that listing would not be appropriate. And we're also seeing FAO recognise that uh, CITES could be a valuable uh, complementary instrument to other management measures. Um, where it's effectively and properly implemented. So there it's interesting, we've seen uh, FAO now recognise the potential value of CITES, but there remain differences of opinion amongst uh, parties with some preferring um, to um, um, not turn to CITES, but rather place reliance upon the regional fisheries management organisations, for example. Uh, So anyway, that that difference of opinion will be played out at the COP. They have the best science available to them uh, but the COP is sovereign and uh, they can uh, determine for themselves uh, whether to accept uh, the science or not and whether to to list further marine species under CITES or or, or not. Other issues that are important, it will be uh, measures being taken to enhance uh, enforcement efforts in particular in relation to African elephant and the African rhino. major issues with the spike in illegal killing and illegal trade related to both. Um, So a number of measures will be considered there. Um, There are no proposals for trade on the table anymore, opening up trade with Tanzania having uh, withdrawn its proposal. There are some proposals coming forward to extend the moratorium um, to look at a decision-making mechanism for ivory trade and another one looking at whether there should be a a suspension of any... um, Trophy hunting in rhinos, uh, they will all be um, relatively contentious issues that will be discussed. So matters around enforcement and these other issues on African elephant and rhino be important. The polar bear and whether it should be uplisted from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1 is generating a lot of attention. And that will be one that uh, I think will uh, generate some uh, diverging opinions and uh, we'll see what happens uh, there. But there are uh, other issues. For example, I've mentioned the financial mechanism. Should Saudis have a financial mechanism? The whole issue of secret ballots and uh, how many votes should be required before you move to a secret ballot. Should it be 10 as it currently is? Should it be a third? Should it be 50%? That will be debated, as will issues to do with conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest of uh, members of the, the two science committees. And on a lighter note, uh, we have the host government proposing um, World, Environment, uh, World uh, Wildlife Day for the 3rd of March in recognition of the 40th anniversary and the date of which the convention was signed, 3rd of March, and saying that should be an international day upon which we uh, celebrate wildlife worldwide uh, through the uh, World Wildlife Day.
0: And I assume that, that last one won't be uh, <laughs> that controversial,
1: or I would <laughs> expect that's why I said on a slightly lighter <laughs> note. Um, we have other issues though. For example, our strategic vision's up for review. We have built into it reference to the strategic plan for biodiversity and the Aichi targets. Um, again, that seems uncontroversial, but it is a step forward in what is referred to as the synergies. Uh, Switzerland's proposing some work be done on uh, on uh, enhancing synergies between biodiversity conventions. So there are a number of other issues that uh, will generate some debate, but perhaps not the same level of debate as some of those that are uh, higher up on the agenda.
0: So I, I, of course, want to turn a little bit to elephants and rhino and sharks. <laughs> yep. but, uh, no, but I just, um, there has been these um, spikes in elephant poaching. And in fact, I just got in, some emails today about... Um, massacre in Central African Republic, and there's been these four instances, one of four elephants, one of two, another of two, another of, those were all in CAR, and then um, Central African Republic, and then four elephants killed in um, south uh, southwestern Chad a couple days ago. And then another report of in a national park in south, uh, southwestern uh, Central African Republic, although that I haven't been able to confirm, um, and I don't know how many elephants there. And so, well, I'm curious about the Central African situation, and if there, when you have these spikes, is is there anything really CITES can do?
1: There's no doubt that both in relation to elephant and rhino, we're seeing a spike in illegal killing and illegal trade. Uh, with respect to elephant, we're seeing it across all four subregions. Most prominently within uh, Central Africa. Um, So the data that we've got, and we don't speculate here, we actually have good data, good analysis, uh, the trends are all up. So with the MIC program, uh, we have the highest level of illegal killing we've seen since MIC data was kept 10 years ago. Uh, With respect to the illegal trade, uh, which is kept by ETIS, which is managed by traffic, uh, we're seeing the highest levels of illegal trade we've seen in, in almost two decades. The other trend we're seeing is uh, much more um, evidence of large-scale seizures, over 800 kilos. Um, The other shift we're seeing is quite clearly organised crime is engaged both in trading elephant uh, ivory and rhino horn. And we're also seeing rebel militia involved, in particular in Central Africa, as a way of supplementing uh, income for illicit activities and we know that on occasion there may be rogue elements of the military who are engaged as well. So we've got a situation where everything's up. Uh, We're confronting uh, well-armed militia, well-armed and organised criminal groups. Um, Responding to this goes beyond the capacity of your average park ranger. Um, So we are seeing those incidents. Uh, There there was the Northern Cameroonian incident. Uh, There are other incidents we see right across the continent. Uh, we also, you know, hear reports of, um, you know, corruption, which uh, is 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 clearly an issue in some instances. Uh, we're seeing some states impose serious penalties and others not. Um, so, you know, there's a whole raft of issues there. But uh, the trends are all up, and we need to pull these trends down.
0: Some of the main areas that the uh, COP16 are, are going to look at. What are are some of the main areas? Some of the domestic control issues, some of the enforcement issues?
1: So they'll look at a number of things and so will the standing committee that precedes it. But uh, what's been identified is looking from source to transit transit to destination state. You can't just look at where the elephants are taken from or where they transit through or where they end up. You have to look at the whole enforcement uh, illegal uh, trade route. So that's what's being looked at right across the board. There are issues being looked at at you know in- enforcement. So more effective enforcement uh, in country that includes, uh, in particular, source states, but also destination states that have domestic ivory markets. So, in particular, Thailand and China. Look at Thailand and China, looking at their domestic markets and ensuring that they are tight enough to resist um, um, the laundering of ivory. Um, Uh, You don't have that situation in Rhino because there is no legal domestic market in Rhino Horn. It's been prohibited uh, basically globally. Um, And the number of range states for the Rhino is less um, as it would appear the number of destination states. So there are different issues for the two, but the COP's going to look at all of those uh, issues and and what sort of enhanced enforcement action could be taken, uh, greater levels of cooperation, um, the additional measures that need to be taken uh, domestically, And um, uh, there are some proposals on the table, um, one from Kenya and others about extending the moratorium on um, uh, uh, opening up trade in Ivory, and another one uh, from Kenya and others about whether you should put a a prohibition on trophy hunting on rhino from South Africa uh, for a period of years, um, and whether or not these proposals will have any benefit or whether they will not have a benefit Etc. will be discussed. So Thankfully, we don't have any proposals to open up trade. Uh, I think Tanzania put in a proposal. They withdrew it. I think you have to ask them, them, not me, why. But I think there's a recognition that we need to consolidate our effort around um, stopping this current trend at the moment and uh, in, in discussing issues of trade, focus the effort on the decision-making mechanism which is a more systemic way of looking at whether you should or should not trade rather than these ad hoc one-off requests for sales.
0: I was going to ask you why why there was that shift that they had had the proposal and then they withdrew it.
1: So I think you'd have to ask them, but I, I, I think that um, it, it was a, a, um, a constructive decision. I think that was in the best interest of focusing the energy of the COP on um, how we're going to deal with this current spike and uh, in discussing issues of trade to focus them around how we'll carry forward a process to look at a decision-making mechanism. So I think it was a very constructive um, decision on the part of Tanzania and its minister to uh, withdraw that proposal and enable the discussion to to focus on other issues.
0: Now, the decision-making mechanism, I know there's been a lot of confusion about it at uh, I mean the standing committee standing meeting committee, yep. and um, and that reading the documents on the decision making mechanisms it's a, it's feels like a completely different um, you know sort of much more reflective much more trying to set a process in place as opposed to assuming that there's going to be trade you know in the near future. Um, could you just You know, could you just explain what well, it is goes that? back <laughs> to COP
1: 14? So okay. a suite of decisions were taken at COP 14 about African elephant issues and issues to do with trade in ivory. This issue of a decision-making mechanism was supposed to have be been concluded by COP 16. So the Standing Committee was uh, meant to have uh, put forward to COP 16 a decision-making mechanism for its consideration and adoption at this COP. Uh, That process was not concluded through the Standing Committee and the proposal that's put forward now is that that process continue and that a mechanism be put forward to COP17 for its consideration. But the the gist of it is um, that um, you have in place uh, a mechanism that is adopted by the COP that prescribes the conditions upon which trade will be enabled um, so it is not a one-off ad hoc assessment or consideration of someone who now wants to sell ivory stockpiles, etc., but rather a more um, uh, a clearer, more systemic regulatory uh, means by which you would determine whether or not the trade um, would occur under the oversight of of the standing committee, rather than go uh, back to the COP. Although the COP would have to put in place certain decisions relating to the mechanism the 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 um, appendices in which the the elephant population sat etc cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. so rather than uh, having ad hoc sort of decisions which provide no certainty to either those who wish to sell or those who wish to buy this would be a more systemic way of dealing with it now there are differences of opinion as to the content of what that should look like and what the conditions should be but there's also a difference of opinion amongst those who would like to open up trade or not enable trade so If you believe that there should be no trade in the first place, um, you don't see the value of um, expending effort on um, putting in place a decision-making mechanism. Um, If you do believe there should be trade, then obviously you want to see this concluded. And if that's concluded, then uh, you would know uh, clearly the conditions upon which you could trade, albeit it would not mean you could trade because it would be subject to the, the content of the mechanism. So that won't be concluded at the COP. Um, What will happen is there will be a debate and we expect um, parties are are likely to adopt a decision that will carry it over to COP17.
0: And then on extending the moratorium, it's the same debate, you know, difference of opinion of whether to open up trade at all.
1: Yes and no. I mean, that's a little bit more complicated because the moratorium was part of the COP14 package as well, which was the four states that were allowed to trade would have a moratorium for nine years from when they traded, which was 2008, puts a moratorium to 2017. The proposal is to extend the moratorium uh, and have it applied to all range states of the African elephant. Uh, Now that opens up issues with respect to the um, consensus that was achieved amongst African states at COP14, which was a package of of measures that were agreed. So it uh, uh, tugs at one, uh, one component of that uh, package of uh, measures that were agreed by consensus. Um, so the issue there is, in part, um, is this is this uh, revisiting a decision that has already been put in place uh, by by the African range states by consensus. Uh, so that will be a bit of an issue uh, there.
0: Okay. All right.
1: And also, the way it's drafted, in part, suggests it would be of retrospective effect, but you can't put in place a resolution that's of retrospective effect, what has happened has happened. Um, And, uh, yeah, so there will be, I think, some questions uh, that relate back to the the history of this as much as anything else.
0: So instead, there could have been a separate proposal to put in place a new moratorium?
1: Um, any party, different... it would have been open to any party to do anything. So um, a party could have just put in a proposal for a complete moratorium. This seeks to revisit a decision that was taken at COP14 and, uh, um, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, all right. And then on, on uh, the domestic markets, you know, what what steps can help prevent illegal ivory from entering the legal domestic markets. I know there was some talk in some of the documents of tracing ivory, and so I'm I'm wondering, are there effective ways to trace ivory?
1: Yes, you can trace ivory. I mean, you can also trace uh, rhino horn and timber, and there are technologies available to do all of this. I mean, it's a question of cost and where states are prepared to deploy the effort. But um, with respect to not... um, enabling iron to be laundered into domestic markets, there are a multiplicity of things. Firstly, is how tightly regulated the market is, how tightly regulated the uh, people that are registered is, uh, what sort of uh, measures are taken to ensure domestically that um, there is not laundering taking place. Um, there's also an issue, though, of uh, the supply to these markets and, 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 and cutting off any illegal supply at source or in transit. Um, there are opportunities to um, uh, identify and distinguish between uh, ivory and the source of ivory, um, as well as rhino horn, for example. South Africa is doing a huge amount of work on DNA uh, testing uh, rhinos and and uh, enables them to, to trace horns straight back to where the animal was, was taken from. So there's lots of technologies you can deploy. Um um, and uh, also in addition to taking, you know, domestic measures to to tighten up domestic markets.
0: Yeah, I know uh, Cindy Harper and the Rhodos yeah. system.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then... So she she seems to be doing a good job. She uh, was interviewed in our Rhino under threat video as well yeah. on our YouTube page.
0: It's very intriguing. It seems um, like a great, you know, not only great science, but. Ex- expanding rapidly, which is uh, – so that the di- database itself is very robust, which is always
1: an no, issue. That's good. And we also attracted a $3 million Jeff grant to South Africa to assist it with this work as well.
0: Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. While we're on the topic of elephants, some of the issues raised in the recent uh, – in Brian Christie's article, Blood Ivory, that was in National Geographic in – when was it? Uh, October. No, I know the
1: article. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and um, And – he he specifically charges that the Chinese government is using its monopoly power on ivory to basically outperform the black market. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. He was charging that China has this 10-year plan to limit supply and is releasing about five tons of ivory annually into the market. And um, that the 2008 sale of ivory, you know, which sold for, he said, $67 per pound, they turned around and sold it for over five hundred dollars, or around five hundred dollars per pound, when the going rate was was actually less than that on the black market. And so, is that you know being investigated? Is that an issue? Well, the, or is it really the out transaction
1: of- in terms of um, the one off sale that China was party to, they um, purchased that uh, ivory in accordance with the one off sale, and they are entitled to release it. Um, to the market in China uh, in the manner they see fit. So that's really a matter for China. It was, a, it was a legal transaction under the convention. There was a one-off sale. China and Japan were the destination states. There was an auction. They purchased the ivory. It was delivered. Then it's open to them in terms of how they um, uh, make that available to the consumer that wants to to purchase and, uh, um, and carve it, et cetera. So I'm not 100% sure exactly what his point there was. Um uh, it certainly doesn't intersect directly with CITES. It was a uh, you know in, in terms of the way China chooses to to sell the ivory it's legally purchased domestically. Um they could not sell it outside of China that would be an issue with the convention. It was only to be used domestically and not to be further internationally traded. But what was the gist of the point there uh, in your view?
0: Oh that um that it's basically outperforming the black market and increasing the demand for illegal ivory. Oh no,
1: but then yeah okay so this is this whole <laughs> argument that legal trade um, um promotes illegal trade that whole debate.
0: Right. <laughs> which um which you know I guess uh well
1: more- there are differing opinions there so um um You know, on the one hand, um, some states say the moratorium has been a complete failure because uh, the demand hasn't been suppressed and you are not enabling any supply. So, in fact, what you're doing through moratorium is driving up um, the involvement of the black market and the illegal taking. That's one side. The other side says, well, if you open up any legal trade, that's going to be a stimulant for illegal trade Um, and... um, uh, therefore, you have to close down all trade um, as the way to to um, you know kill off the demand and kill off the or, or to to neutralize the killing of uh, illegal killing of elephants. So the two you know diametrically opposed views there as to the impact of a moratorium, vis-a-vis the impact of uh, trade. And they both had their own arguments. Um, they both had the same objective in mind, which is we need to take measures to protect the elephant in the wild. They both agree that you should never kill an elephant for its ivory. This should only be from elephants that uh, have uh, have um, uh, died of natural causes. But where they um, depart company is whether or not it uh, is advantageous or disadvantageous to the survival of elephants to open up trade in, in ivory. Completely diametrically opposed views there, and they have their own arguments to support them. Um, so there I think, you know, the parties are just at odds with one another. Um so yeah. And we'll probably in one at one stage or other see that debate open up with rhino horn. Um the difference with rhino horn is the animal doesn't have to die to access the horn. You can use techniques to, to shave it, etc. You also have natural mortalities. So that debate's not, at, uh, not on the table at this COP, but um, it's one that may emerge into the future, and particularly given the interest of the private sector in South Africa.
0: And then is there any, I mean, elephants come closest to actually having a system in place with Mike and Edis um, of testing that hypothesis, whether, you know, legal trade increases or decreases the illegal trade. Is it robust enough to do that yet, or...?
1: Um, Well, they both came to the same conclusion that the two one-off sales, there's no statistical evidence to suggest that the one-off sales did anything to increase the illegal killing or illegal trade. So if you read those reports, they both come to the same conclusion. Statistically speaking, they can't see that uh, the one-off sales had any impact. Equally, statistically speaking, they can't see that the moratorium um, had any impact. Um, But what the Mike report does say is that these one-off sales are very hard to analyze from a statistical point of view because they're too ad hoc and irregular to actually try and trend any statistical significance. But neither Mike nor Etis in their analysis as reflected in the reports um, see a correlation between um, illegal killing and trade and those two one-off sales. But that's the one I'll say yeah. is either wider argument of trade or not trade. The rhino uh, lobby in South Africa will point to the vicuña in South America where it was down to about five to 6,000 species through illegal hunting. Uh, vicuña wool is now uh, sheared from the vicuña. Uh, they're in the wild, they capture them, they shear them, they release them. Uh, the benefits go back to local communities and there are now um, just short of 400,000 vicuña uh, in the wild. That is an example where enabling trade, and it's a trade that didn't involve um, the, the death of the animal, uh, has clearly worked to the advantage of the vicuña and to the advantage of local people. But you have to look at everything uh, in a in a national, or regional, or sub-regional context, uh, the animals concerned, what's involved, so while you can look at different examples, um, you have to exercise some caution in a direct um, transferring of one experience to another, although you can learn clearly from one to the other. With the vicuña, they also have in place a, a very robust uh, sub-regional agreement amongst states as to how they're going to to deal with the uh, the trade. That is a great success story, though, of uh, um, scientists, and, and I should say the the rhino was a great success story of the convention as well. Um, the white rhino at the end of the last century, at the end of uh, eighteen ninety five, uh, was down to about. 50 or a few more, a few less um, individuals. Uh, we're now up to about 19,000. Um, so it is a success. Now, the successes are under threat given the, uh, the trends we see in illegal killing, but uh, that uh, species recovered significantly um, uh, over the years, including uh, through the efforts taken after it was included under CITES.
0: What has made the, <laughs> on the rhino issue, it, you know, this this change? I mean, because it's really been significant over the last five
1: years. Um, so demand is up in principally in Vietnam. Um, we're seeing demand associated with non-traditional uses. So while it's still used in traditional Chinese medicine, uh, what seems to be driving demand is is not associated with traditional uses, um, using it as a cancer cure or for rhino wine or for hangover cure or if aphrodisiac. It was not traditionally used as an aphrodisiac. Um, that was a Western myth that did full circle. Um, so we're um, also uh, reading reports of people are banking on extinction, so they will stockpile either ivory or ivory under the uh, belief that the, the value of the... Of the uh, of the horn or the rhino rhino horn or the uh, um, elephant ivory will uh, increase. Um, so that's something we've uh, we've read with interest various reports about that. So you know there's a multiplicity of factors there. Um, um, with the uh, elephant ivory, there's clearly a, an increase in demand. Uh, people are prepared to pay a higher price. Um, in a number of countries, uh, including Kenya, the penalties are too low. So, you have uh, demand, high um, uh, prices being paid, uh, low risk of detection, low risk of penalty in many instances, and that makes it uh, quite an attractive proposition. Uh, But where we see the highest levels of poaching tends to be where you've got poor governance, uh, high levels of poverty, um, poor levels of enforcement. So, um, it tends to be the demand that is there, which is high, uh, coupled with areas where we're seeing uh, weaker. Governance, weaker enforcement, higher levels of poverty—that you tend to see the higher level of illegal killing. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a—it's—it's it's a mix of things there. So um, if you read a recent report of the Security Council on what's going on in the DRC in in relation to the way in which human beings are being treated, including uh, children. Um, it's quite a depressing read, and you also see the uh, um, uh, interrelationship between groups such as Lord's Resistance Army and the illegal killing of elephant and and, and trade in the ivory, and uh, anecdotal evidence to support that. And you know they're now investigating that further. So, you know, you're in some pretty difficult parts of the world where human life uh, is not um, um, is is not um, Uh, treated as something sacred um, by these groups and uh, neither is animals.
0: One question remaining is regarding sharks. It was such a sort of disaster at COP15 in terms of the political and commercial interest overtaking uh, some of the science behind it. Um, And do you expect that same controversy, I'm just curious, you know, coming up and Or, you know, what's different now to put some of these same species of shark?
1: I think there's some more robust science. Um, I think we have engaged over the last three years with the regional fisheries management organisations, including ICAT. Uh, I personally appeared before ICAT. We have a a letter of understanding with them. I also appeared before FAO COFI, Committee on Fisheries. Um, We had a meeting with FAO in Genizzano in Italy, uh, with, uh, experts from across the field, including fisheries experts, and the outcome of that meeting recognized that CITES has, um, a valuable role, uh, in contributing to, um, the work of RFMOs and other, other management options. Uh, we see the FAO panel convened, um, we see recommendations, uh, and other comments, uh, supporting, uh, listing under CITES and the, and the valuable role it can play. Um, but uh, the COP is sovereign, so the COP can accept or reject uh, the advice that's provided. Um, there are differences of opinion, in particular whether or not you should utilise sites or rely upon the RFMOs, and that's where there's a, a, a philosophical difference of opinion amongst parties. But we have to respect that a COP like a Parliament or a Congress or a Diet or a, uh, or, or a Duma or anything else is sovereign, So they have reserved unto themselves a sovereign right to decide to accept or reject uh, the scientific evidence. We present them with the best possible science. And in that sense, it's no different to what you see under the Climate Convention. They actually have the whole architecture of the IPCC to inform them. Uh, The parties have not necessarily decided to run with the science that's presented to them. So here I think we, we, as a general rule, see our parties... Uh, align themselves very closely with the science and I think that's the strength of the convention. But there are times when there are philosophical differences and uh, parties will have to decide amongst themselves where they want to utilise CITES and CITES can be used for any species. There's no uh, there's no restriction there but uh, they'll have to decide for themselves where and when they choose to use CITES in areas where it hasn't um Uh, historically been as active and I think the timber issue seems to be now an area where parties are very keen to use it. Uh, Commercially valuable fisheries uh, tends to be an area where there's some issue. But the other thing with sharks and rays, you see that they are not regulated to the same extent as other commercially valuable species under RFMOs um, and there'll be some debate around that. So let's see. It's up for the parties as to whether or not they want to use the instrument. What is interesting is that uh, the FAO certainly has uh, acknowledged the value of CITES as a complementary instrument, um, and uh, that's a, a significant step forward. And um, let's see. But I think the important thing to do is we have to respect the, the sovereignty of the of the COP, and and the parties will will make their choice informed by the best science. But they can also choose to decide that they prefer to work through other instruments uh, rather than CITES. We'll. we'll uh, we will watch with interest to see which way they decide to go at this COP.
0: Well, sounds good. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with CITES Secretary General John Scanlon. I'm Laurel Neeme and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening.